Good evening, Europe. Start voting now. Oh, you're excited for tonight, aren't you? Uh, I'm very excited. I mean, it's like politics, joy, and musical theater all rolled into one. So it's my perfect cocktail. And best of all, we you didn't have it last year. So it's suddenly a lot of pent up excitement for two years worth, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Well, we'll certainly be watching out for the voting politics of all. I don't expect in the post-Brexit era, the United Kingdom to do well. But uh, how many points do you think the UK is going to get? Oh, who knows? I mean, I don't, I don't think it'll be doing... You, you say that they won't be doing very well as, as though they do do very well usually. So um, we'll, we'll see. Well, the good news is, is that uh, the UK came stone dead last. Uh, in 2019 with 11 points. So I suppose the only way is up, isn't it? It certainly is. Anyway, it is Saturday the 22nd of May 2021, the day of the Eurovision Song Contest. And this is Ballad to Talk About. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Churn. How's everything going? Is lockdown treating you well? Well, I suppose I now have complete sympathy for what you felt for towards the end of last year. Um, but other than that, I'm doing well myself. Um, I suppose it's just a study in contrast, isn't it? As I was enjoying relative freedom last year, you were locked up. And now it is the other way around. So... It's a bit, I suppose, you know, karma is uh, ensuring that all things are even, I suppose. <laughs> yes, well, fingers crossed, this will be the last round of regulations, but we'll see. Anyway, today we will be taking our final deep dive look into the 2021 UK local elections, assessing what happened throughout England on Super Thursday back on the 6th of May. We'll be chatting all things Hartlepool, we'll be looking at Starmer's reshuffle, and pondering how and why the Conservatives are riding so high amidst a series of scandals and a questionable performance on COVID-19 over the past year. But first, Sam, before we talk about all that, we have to update our listeners on a variety of news from Down Under, isn't it? Yeah, we do. So we've got the Tasmanian state elections to round up. And also just yesterday, there was the by-election we talked about happening in Upper Hunter in New South Wales. So the victorious Premier Peter Gutwin this week was sworn in once again for the Liberals' third term in government and in the process unveiled his new cabinet, which, although featured many of the same names, saw a lot of them assume new portfolios. So like we talked about a few weeks ago, Mark, like Mark McGowan, Peter Gutwin has appointed himself treasurer and has retained the portfolios of tourism and climate change. And arguably the biggest move was the Deputy Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe and Sarah Courtney swapping their health and education portfolios, with Rockcliffe becoming health minister whilst retaining the mental health portfolio, which was welcomed by a lot of advocates. Mark Shelton leaves the government and is the, the nominee of the Liberal Party for the Speaker of the Lower House. And in his place, Jackie Petrusma returns to the government, and she had previously resigned due to ill health back in 2019 and she becomes the police minister and minister for the prevention of family violence. This reshuffle was also meant to solve a few political problems within the government. So Roger Jainsh's human services portfolios, which was seen as a bit of a weak point for the 
government has been split up and the housing has been given to the State Department, Infrastructure and Construction Minister Michael Ferguson and Sarah Courtney will become the Children's Minister. So instead, change will now become Environment Planning and Local Government Minister. So quite a bit of a shift around in that government. And then on the Labour Party side, after the Tasmanian state elections, despite initially saying that she would fight on the leadership, having led her party to two successive election defeats, the Labour Party leader Rebecca White this week announced her resignation as leader after wanting to have a conversation about the future of the party, which potentially includes party reform. She's endorsed shadow treasurer David O'Byrne as her successor, and he subsequently put his hand up for leadership, but he will face a challenge from the moderate Shane Broad, and this will be decided by a vote of the party membership, and in the meantime it will be Deputy Labour leader Anita Dow who was elected unopposed, and she'll be serving as the acting Labour leader. So a few questions for you, Chern, about these developments in Tasmania. Firstly, do you think this reshuffle is an indication of a government that is emboldened by its election victory, or is it broadly business as usual, given the minimal change we saw in the polls a few weeks ago? Yes, I do think that this is a, a reshuffle which indicates a government very much steady-as-she-goes approach, and one in which they will largely keep the policy position that it subscribed to before the election. I will say this, though, that um, if we look at the fact that only one member of the government has left, which is uh, Mark Shelton and uh, Jackie Petrusma has joined the government, is that the Liberal caucus in the lower house only 13 members. So in the reality is that the pool of potential ministers is relatively small compared to some of the bigger countries like the United Kingdom or the rest mm -hmm. of Australia. So it does mean that in terms of people moving in and out of government, that is less of an opportunity to do so. But nonetheless, as you see what um, has happened here, is that there is many changes within the government itself. And I think what um, Peter Godwin has tried to do is to marry up the portfolios a lot better than in what his first government was. So as we mentioned very briefly, the mental health portfolio has been reunited with the wider health portfolio. Children's services has been reunited with the education ministry. And uh, Sarah Courtney will also be a uh, minister for skills and training as well. And mm -hmm. Roger, and, you know, housing has been given with the construction, infrastructure, transport, and finance, which is all kind of related to each other. So I think what this reshuffle is trying to do is to maximize the synergies that were, and put it under one minister's hat rather than divide it up, up over many ministers. So mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest change in this government as I read it. And on the Labour side, with Rebecca White resigning, is the ideological battle to replace her something we see quite regularly in the Australian Labour Party? Because it's certainly something we're used to in the UK, as I'm sure we'll be talking about a bit later in this podcast. And do you think that it is that ideological battle that is to blame for their latest in a long string of defeats now in Tasmania? Well, when we say it's a long stream of defeats, Tasmania is usually a Labour state. They're not yeah. used to being out of power for very long. In fact, it's just lost its third election victory. It's now going to be the longest time it is out of power. So just briefly, the Australian Labour Party is divided into two factions. We have the left faction and the right faction. The left faction dominates Tasmanian politics and is where David O'Byrne and Rebecca White hails from. And I think what happened is that at the start of the campaign, uh, David O'Byrne is a member for the Franklin electorate. And 
uh, Dean Winter, who was a very popular mayor of Kingborough, but belonged to the right faction. So in other words, the wrong faction as such. Um, mm-hmm. Because of the fact that he was running in Franklin, uh, the, the left faction numbers actually blocked him and he had to take national intervention to put him on the ballot after some outcry. And that distracted the Labour campaign right at the very start for a couple of days. And then we also had problems with candidates disavowing the party platform. You had the state president having to stand down over sending salacious text messages. So it suggested a campaign that that the first two weeks, I would say, was distracted by internal issues. That has fueled a lot of the moderates' discomfort with the way the majority left faction has run the Labour Party as such. The problem in Tasmania as West Australia and to a lesser extent the Labour Party in the United Kingdom is that they need two different messages, which the two different factions can are more natural at. So for example, in the south of Tasmania, you have the Hobart area and Franklin. You need much more left-wing message. But in the north, which is traditionally dominated by you know, working class traditional industry like logging, mining, you know, areas where you probably meet a much more centrist, moderate Labour Party that the right is more capable of delivering. And that's where Shane Broad is hailing from. He hails from the north of the state. And that's where the Liberals essentially won the majority with a high vote in the north of the state. So it's a battle between south and north of the Labour Party here. And it is now the north trying to re-exert its influence. So in conclusion, I think that... Uh, it will be a somewhat ideological battle, but not to the same extent of divisiveness we are seeing in the UK Labour Party because the faction system is very institutionalised within the Labour Party and they are very used to working across the left and right factions much more harmoniously than in UK Labour. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest acrimony will come by the fact that this is Tasmanian Labour's biggest stint out of power and they're not used to it. So that's where the acrimony is rather than mm-hmm. an ideological battle between left and right. I do expect that after the election, they will make up and, you know, and they will, they will patch the differences much more successfully than UK Labour has. But for right now, there's a real battle for how the Labour Party should appeal. Should it maximise its vote in the South where it fell this time around in Hobart or try and reclaim its traditional heartlands in the North? And that's mm-hmm. the battle that will have to be coming out over the days and months ahead. Well, in another bad piece of news for the Australian Labour Party, we got the result just a few hours ago from the Upper Hunter by-election in New South Wales. And it was a must-win by-election for State Premier Gladys Berejiklian. And the National Party came out on top in yesterday's poll. In fact, they increased their vote share, which is taking the government in New South Wales back to parity. The election, as we talked about a few weeks ago, was triggered to following the resignation of Michael Johnson after the emergence of a sexting scandal. And it put the incumbent government on the brink of losing its relatively comfortable position in the state. And the result was an incredibly bad night for the Labour Party, who, at the time of recording, have lost 9% of first preferences down to 21%. And it's likely to lead to a huge pressure on Labour leader Jodie McKay to leave her post. And a number that the Berejiklian government looks quite keen to quote is usually the average swing against governments in by-elections in the last 15 years has been around 15%. So to get any swing in the government's direction is quite an achievement, especially considering there's a predicted 4% swing towards the government in this by-election. And in fact, the last time there was a swing to the government, it was back in 1996 in Clarence, 
And that was the first term of the car government, let alone a government in the third term like Berejiklian's. So are you surprised at this margin and also surprised at the minimal impact the scandal seemed to have on the National Party's vote share? Um, first of all, I think one quick point is that the government did lose uh, share a primary vote. So its primary vote fell by 3%. But in the two party preferred, as you said, yeah. there was a 4% swing to the government. Was I surprised by the margin? I have to admit, I did not expect the government to increase its margin by four percentage points, which is a very significant increase. I thought at the very moment it would tread water um, and roughly hold roughly the 2PP. So yes, I was surprised about that. I think the minimal impact of the scandal, I think it is kind of something in which we are um, we need something to talk about because as you begin to talk about the Hartlepool by-election, that by-election is also caused by sexual misconduct on behalf of a Labour Party member. I think in many ways, because voters have been so used to seeing sex scandals involving politicians, that the impact of the, those scandals in causing the vote to decline is significantly minimised compared to how it would be in the past. So therefore, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a plague of both your houses, is that they there's no one party to gain for having an MP resigning in a sex scandal in the same way as it did maybe 10, 20 years ago, because I suspect voters have been through too many of these by-elections, um, you know, and the circumstances caused by sex scandal for them to really punish one party disproportionately because of it, really. And also, now that we've talked about this by-election result and what happened in Tasmania a few weeks ago, do you think the National Labour Party will be concerned about what is going what is going on for the party, or do you think these are results they'd kind of factored in? Well, first of all, let's just give a bit of context to this Harper Under by-election. The Barry Jiglin government, or previously the coalition government, has been in power for 10 years. It has it is the same colour as a federal government. It has uh, it saw an MP resign in disgrace, but there's a four percent swing to it. It has literally defied the laws of political gravity. And I had a look at the last time in which the New South Wales Labour Party was in power, and it faced a by-election sort of midway through its third term. And a comparable one was the Macquarie Fields by-election held in September 2005. And that saw a 12% swing against the government on two-party preferred. So this um, by-election result is absolutely spectacular for the coalition. And I think from the National Labour Party's point of view, there are two, there's both something to be concerned about and something not to be concerned about. So briefly, the, the, the electoral system in the New South Wales state is slightly different from that of federal uh, elections. In other words, it, the main difference is the fact that in the New South Wales state election, it's something called optional preferential voting. In other words, you don't have to number your ballot beyond just putting a one you can stop after that. Whereas in federal mm -hmm. elections, we saw that um, they had to number, you had to number every single box from one to how many candidates are standing. And I do note that in this, this by-election, one third of all voters exhausted. In other words, they didn't fill down their ballot paper, something that would not happen in the federal election. So that's the first point. That's Labour's crumb of comfort. But the problem for Labour is a 9% fall in its vote which is, you know, unacceptable for a party that is seeking to reclaim government. And, you know, and what's even worse is that the preferential flows to Labour decline from the general election itself, 
So not only was Labour held by a reduced primary vote, but even though it lost votes to independence, the votes didn't come back in preferences. And you have to question why that's happening. So from Labour's point of view, I would be especially concerned about that. And even worse for the government, uh, the Labour Party, is that the Scott Morrison-led coalition is looking to New South Wales as an area in which it could gain seats to potentially offset some of the losses it could suffer in other states. And the upper Hunter electorate is contained within the federal electorate of Hunter. And that is helped by the Labour Party on 2.9%. I know that if you can't take the state results and put it on the federal seat, but if you put a 4% swing against a 2% margin, the coalition would gain the seat. So I think from that point of view, Labour will be particularly concerned and, in, and particularly how low its primary vote is would be its main concern looking forward for Anthony Albanese. Hmm. And with an Australian election due within the next 12 months, I'm sure we'll be talking about this extensively at a later date as well. But very interesting to get caught up on what's going on down under. The federal government will be looking at seats like the Hunter particularly well. It is the demographic which centre-right parties have performed particularly well, you know, much more uh, primary industry producing, more working class outside the cities. And we're going to be discussing what happened in the UK. Some of those trends are very similar to what has happened in the Hunter, upper Hunter by-election. But that, will be, that, that conversation will take place after the break. And it's now a good moment to pause and we'll be right back in just a moment. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. As we said at the top of the show, Super Thursday saw a huge amount of elections take place across England, with 145 councils and 13 mayoralties up for grabs. And with an 8% swing towards them, it was the Conservatives that walked away the biggest winners, continuing their assault on the former Red Wall and holding on to some of the night's biggest prizes, such as the West Midlands mayoralty. And we'll be looking at how the parties fared on May the 6th today, who was up, who was down, and we'll be talking about some specific results that we found interesting. But first, Chern, as per usual, I wanted to ask you, were you surprised by these results? What's your main takeaway? My main takeaway is a bit like the Australian one, is that this is a government in its 10th year, or 11th year, when these results happen. These results should not be happening to a government in its 11th year in power. I just find it extraordinary that it, the Labour Party performed so poorly, considering we had a new leader, new message. Um, so that was my biggest surprise. And really, the enduring power of Boris Johnson really stood out to me because, you know, in the lead up to a month, you, you could say the Conservative Party occurred a chaotic month leading up to the May the 6th series of elections. And in England, they didn't seem to be punished in any way, shape or form for it, really. How about yourself? Were you surprised by the extent of the conservative dominance in England? I think I was, because as we talked about when we previewed England, the councils that and the elections that were taking place on May the 6th were last up in 2016 and 2017. And on both those occasions, the Labour Party did badly. So my expectation was that even that a bad night for Labour would be very little change because they were already at a very low point and yet it managed to fall even further. So maybe in 2016, 2017, we actually overestimated how bad a night it actually was because they seemed to be able to fall even further. 
in fact, Labour didn't just lose one or two councillors, they lost 327. And the Conservatives mm. gained 235. So these were quite big movements in terms yeah. of councils. And I do note that the national projected share, which is a count, it's just an estimate, and because of the of what the national popular vote would be, put uh the Conservatives on 36%, but more worrying is Labour on 29%. Mm-hmm. And that is a gap of seven points. And Labour on 29% suggests that from the general election in 2019, they've gone backwards a little bit in many of these areas, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I mean, for many reasons, there's an asterisk on those figures, as you said. But yes, that's still quite concerning, especially for a local election night 11 years into Conservative rule. But I think we should just get straight into it and talking about the winners and losers of this election, starting with the big winners of the night, which was clearly the Conservative Party, who increased their council account by over 200 and took control of 13 extra councils, which is an astonishing performance, frankly, compared to what were seen as quite excellent performances in both 2017 and 2016 as well. In fact, back in 2017, they gained nearly 600 councillors on an 8% swing towards them. So to get a further 8% swing this time is quite something. And they continued their 2019 surge into the former red wall seats, building their support in councils, some of which have never seen Conservative councillors before. In fact, Rotherham has never had a Conservative councillor and, as of today, now has 20. And it was largely seen as an endorsement of Boris Johnson's government's vaccine rollout and, as we keep saying, is a very strong performance for a party that's been in power for 11 years. So, what do you think went right for the Conservatives or do you think this was purely a vaccine bomb? I think that this was right for the Conservatives purely because of some of the where these elections were taking place. They took place in areas where the Conservative Party did very well in 2019 general election, and its appeal has clearly gone beyond that. So I think partly was the fact that these elections took place in the right areas. Because mm-hmm. certainly, and the fact that they were seeing the narrative spun that they had a very good night was the fact that the first councils to report were very much off the Red Wall itself, places like Dudley, Sunderland, Northumberland in the north. And mm-hmm. I do recall that when, when Saturday and Sunday came around and when Cambridgeshire and uh, some of the southern councils came in, we saw the Conservative Party going backwards. But the narrative had already been set by the massive Conservative advances in the Red Wall areas. And that is what a lot of the political focus was on. So some of their backwards was some of their retreats in some of their more traditional heartland areas was disguised because of the fact that people were still writing news articles about the red wall to a large extent what went right Mm -hmm. for the conservatives well yes the vaccine bump played a big extent to it as well but i think it takes two to tangle not only did the conservatives have a good message regarding vaccine bump i genuinely think this idea of leveling up no matter how whether the fruits has been delivered so far, but the messaging and the rhetoric certainly is very appealing to red wall voters. And I think that the Labour Party itself didn't manage to settle on a message that could appeal to these voters, hence why the swing was particularly strong. Do you think we are witnessing a fundamental realignment in English politics, or do you think the ability of Labour to hang on to first place in most of these areas demonstrated their ability to come back at some point? I still think you're seeing a fundamental realignment of English politics. I don't think, I think people under, people thought that the realignment was due to Brexit. 
And I think what people have now realized is that that fundamental realignment was based on a wider set of issues, not just related to Brexit. And that Brexit accelerated this process of red wall voters being disillusioned with Labour. They shopped around and looked for other parties at various extent, the Liberal Democrats and UKIP. But very much then, they couldn't do as much damage as when they finally went to the Conservatives that's when they did the maximum damage to Labour's prospects. So I think what has happened is that we have viewed this as a fundamental realignment, but actually it's a process that's been going on not just for five years since Brexit, but for a much longer 20-year 20, mm-hmm. period, I would argue. Mm-hmm. The ability to Labour to hang on to first place, I think now really depends on the types of seats in the supposed Red Wall. I think in the Red Wall now, it's a very much more in the urban cities like Manchester, you know, Liverpool, they are probably still able to hold on particularly well. But in the more working class, smaller cities, I just see their foot completely collapsing, really. So I think its ability to hang on would depend on the type of seats and where those seats are moving mm-hmm. forward in this Red War region. Yeah, I mean, I'm touching on the alignment, um, should the Conservatives be worried about some of the poorer results they had on the night in the south of England, such as the west of England mayoralty, or we saw them do quite badly in Cambridgeshire as well? Do you think this should be sounding alarm bells in Conservative HQ, or do you think they'll actually be not too concerned? I think they would be con- yes and no to that question. Firstly, the Conservative Party in many of these southern, uh, southern councils didn't lose all the seats to one party. They lost it to a sm- smattering of other parties, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, to, uh, and Liberal Democrats and Greens both took significant numbers in those areas, not just the Labour Party. And we know, for example, that Liberal Democrats do a lot much better locally than it ever does in national elections. So in a first-past-the-post system, it is useful that when you lose votes, you don't lose them to all one party. You lose them to a smattering of parties. So from that point of view, it is good. And the, the, the fact remains that the realignment of politics is very much more aggressive in the north of England rather than in southern England, where it's, a bit more, it's, it's taking place much more slowly. But nonetheless, I put seats like South Cambridgeshire, you know, who look like prime targets for the Liberal Democrats, and, you know, Oxfordshire looks terrible result for the Oxfordshire Conservatives, Conservative Party, but they have a big majority there as well. So I think they would be concerned by the erosion of their vote, but take comfort by the fact that they, it's not going all to one party, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think you're right there. And do you think that this, these elections actually came at exactly the right time for the government, despite the scandals? Do you think them taking place in the middle of quite a successful period for them in the pandemic ultimately will be one of the key reasons why they did well? I think, you know, we, we've done this podcast for quite a while and we talked about the numerous COVID bounces for governments that seem to perform well. And, you know, we talked to the last two big uh, podcasts to go about you know, Scotland and Wales also having the same issue. So yes, from that point of view, it is similar to the other trends you've seen in the fact that oh, there was a vaccine bounce for the Conservatives, definitely. But yes, I was surprised by how much her scandals didn't have a large impact. Um, you know, because it was not just one scandal, 
it was many. It was the wallpaper. It was the bodies piling high comment, which I thought could be particularly damaging given the potency of COVID as a cleavage. So yes, I was surprised. I thought that one scandal might be dismissed, but having scandal upon scandal upon an 11-year-old government might have caused a larger impact. So yes, from that point of view, I was surprised. Were you surprised, Sam? Um, I think it's difficult to say. I think, as I said at the top, I think I was surprised at just how strong the Conservative performance was. But at the same time, in the context of what's going on in the pandemic and also the limited nature of the campaign, a campaign in which the government has been able to dominate the news cycle because we're hearing from the government pretty much every day on coronavirus. I think at the same time, there's a there's an element of, if you're surprised about this, then I don't think you've been paying as much attention to the kind of news cycle that's been happening, if you know what I mean. And, and I also think that it's also particularly key as well is that the government over recent weeks was becoming much more positive, i.e. Yeah. looking at relocking and what you can do. And there was hope ahead. And I think people seeing that hope, that they were reaching potentially the end of the tunnel and they were leading the way, the United Kingdom, in terms of vaccine rollout, made it easier for them to vote for the government, I feel. Mm-hmm. So there's another party that had a good night on Super Thursday as well, isn't there? Indeed, there was, and it was the Green Party. Like in Scotland, did very well in, um, in, in across England. They doubled the number of council seats they won from 88 to 151, and it seemed to do well against both the Labour and the Conservatives. So just a couple of results to, uh, to look at. Um, for his, in, uh, against Labour, in the Sheffield Council, they ensured that Labour lost its overall majority on the council, in fact, the Greens just came 200 votes or so behind the Liberal Democrats with 21% share, percent share to vote. And in Bristol, the Greens did even better winning the popular vote and going from 11 seats to 24, which is the joint highest number of seats with the Labour Party. And like I said, they also did well in traditional conservative areas like Suffolk, where they went from three seats to nine seats. Although arguably there was lesser damage done there because the Conservatives did manage to increase their share of the vote and gain an extra county councillor. And in mayoral elections, I'd particularly like to bring up the London mayor elections where Sean Berry doubled their first preference votes compared to the 2012, uh, 2016 election and came a clear third place um, where a position usually held by the Liberal Democrats. So Sam, just a couple of questions on the Greens. Is that the Greens have managed, what is the Greens appeal to both Labour voters and Conservative voters and more impressively, how did they manage to appeal to both groups simultaneously in the same election? I mean, I think their appeal to Labour voters is reasonably straightforward, which is that they provide a nice place for disengaged Labour voters to go who have an environmental-leaning and left-leaning fiscal policies. So it, it, it makes sense as a protest vote for Labour voters. Particularly without and Jeremy think, Corbyn as well, isn't it? Yeah, and I think for the Conservative voters, I think a lot of it comes down to a palette of their policies, which is, I think, there's a lot more green consciousness within a lot of moderate Conservative voters. I think the pro-Remain factor over the last five years has been quite a good poll for the Green Party because they're pro-Remain and they're not the Labour Party. And I think they ha- they have quite a globalist international outlook on a lot of um issues which i think appeals to quite a lot of conservative moderates particularly in an age where 
by a lot, it's perceived that this current Conservative government is looking inwards quite a lot. So I think there's a cocktail there of policies which, although they're not really, they would seem inherently left-wing policies, I think they do appeal to the more urban, moderate, conservative-leaning voters as well in an age where the Conservative Party, to most, seems to be shifting towards the right. So you describe the Greens as globalist, um, you know, socially liberal and, you know, mm-hmm. um, in, in their policies. To me, it sounds awfully like the policy offerings by the Liberal Democrats as well. Yeah. So how have they been able to stand out against the Liberal Democrats when they're trying to appeal to conservative voters? Because I think traditionally in the past, whenever conservatives get disillusioned with their party, they tend to vote Lib Dem rather than Greens. So what mm-hmm. has been their success against uh, in fighting for the Tory vote against the Lib Dems? I mean, I think it's important to say that the Lib Dems are still a larger party than the Green Party. So this process is ongoing. But I think the Lib Dem brand over the last 10 years has suffered quite a lot. Firstly, there was the coalition government in which the Conservative Party basically destroyed them, at least in the short term. And then I think over the Brexit period, the the Liberal Democrats took the most radical position pro-Remain, even though the Green Party had quite a similar position, but because the Liberal Democrats had a bigger platform to espouse it, they became to represent the radical Remain wing. And I think a lot of moderate Conservatives, even the ones who were pro-Remain, found that very difficult to deal with. So I think the Green Party are emerging as a nice alternative for that. And I think it's important as well, the environmental side of things, because I think green politics is becoming a lot more prominent. And to have a party that is unashamedly pro-environment in pretty much every policy angle they do, I think that's also quite attractive for some moderate conservatives as well. Indeed, I think that's uh, particularly very key as well. In fact, they're called the Greens. Environmental policy should be their USP. So therefore, looking ahead a bit, what are the potential for the Greens in general elections? Can they translate their support in places like Bristol, in potentially the Bristol West constituency, and Sheffield in a general election where the spotlight will very much focus on the Labour Party leader against the Conservative Party leader and traditional partisanship and race between the two traditional parties to become Prime Minister? Because let's be honest, neither Sean Berry, who is a female co-leader, or Jonathan Bartley, who is a male co-leader, will become Prime Minister after the next election. No, I mean, I think it's tricky for the Green Party in Westminster elections because although these council elections also operate on first-past-the-post, it's much, it's a much smaller voter pool. So in order to combat the limitations of first-past-the-post, you need less votes in order to do that, which the Green Party can manage to do with quite an intense local campaign. But then on the larger scale, I mean, the Bristol West has been a perennial target of the Green Party since they since the mid-2010s when they became a more national party. And yet they came quite close, within 7,000 votes of taking it in 2015. But in 2019, the majority was nearly 30,000. So that's one of their best performing seats, and there's a majority of 30,000. And then in Sheffield Central, they came third in all three elections in 2015. So I think it's going to be very difficult for them to convert this into Westminster seats. But saying that, I think that their main hope really is to try and at some point become 
the third party in the United Kingdom, which I don't think is an unrealistic aspiration. It's a tough ask, given the infrastructure of the Liberal Democrats and the history of that party. But I think it certainly seems ideologically plausible for them to be able to have, as we talked about, the pull of both sides to become a, a centre for people who are environment conscious and are prepared to deal with the other policies that the Green Party adopt. I don't know if you agree. I have to admit that that could be their ambition, but it's going to take a darn sight longer than what we oh, yes. think. Yeah. You know, they only have one MP in Caroline Lucas, who's quite entrenched, I admit, and Brighton Pavilion. But beyond that, I mean, like, like you said, they have to knock out quite big majorities, really, in order to gain even that second seat. And trying to do that would take, you know, some time for that to be achieved. And it sounds think- like what you're implying, that they could suffer what the Liberal Democrats suffer, is that they do very well in local elections, but find it hard to translate that support into a general election setting for a whole variety of reasons, isn't it? Part of their problem as well is that a lot of their Westminster target seats are these Labour-held university towns. Mm. And you have a bit of a ceiling with those kind of votes as a Green Party because you're going after the exact demographic that at the moment is Labour's top demographic. So it's very difficult to try and take them. If we were looking at like marginal university towns that the Conservatives held on to somehow, I think it might be a different issue here. But I think the kind of voters they're going after are voters who are in a national context going to try and endorse a Labour Prime Minister over a Conservative Prime Minister and the Green Party will always suffer because of that. Indeed. And I suspect, but I think that one, you know, we talked about these marginal university towns. I will point to the Canterbury constituency, actually, which is held by Rosie Duffield, mm-hmm. very narrowly. Um, but even in then, you know, the Greens are, you know, they didn't even stand in Canterbury. So, you know, I, I doubt that that will be a particular target seat for them. And that's a Labour majority of only 1,800 votes or so. And in Warwick and Leamington, which is the other seat, you, you know, university town seats, which has a very small Labour majority of just 700 votes, the, the Greens came fourth with just over 3% of the vote. So they're going to come for an yeah. awfully low base if they were to do so. Um, but nevertheless, though, in the first-past-the-post system, because of the fact that it's priority voting, they can do damage to one of the parties by disproportionately taking votes away from one of them. Are they likely to take more votes away from Labour? I think they probably are in this kind of first-past-the-post system. As we've talked about many times, I think it's the curse of British politics in some people's mind, but the blessing in others, that there is there are a lot of parties on the left and pretty much one party on the right. So naturally, the left vote ends up being more split. But if the Green Party become a siphon for disengaged Conservatives as well, then we could be starting to see differences, particularly in some of the more marginal seats in England where the Green Party have been starting to get councillors for the first time ever. Like they were getting councillors for the first time up in the Red Wall in places like Northumberland and Stockport, but also in places like Derbyshire and Suffolk as well. In fact, they gained six councillors in Suffolk, which is one of those areas where I think if you start to see a bit of a drain on the Conservative support, these are the kind of southern areas that I think Labour will be very interested in. Indeed. Speaking of the Liberal Democrats, 
how did they perform? Well, I mean, as we talked about, local elections are a traditionally fruitful ground for the Liberal Democrats, even at their deepest political lows. And a few weeks ago, they had a, a fine night, marginally increasing their council account by a handful of councillors and actually regaining majority control of the St Albans local council after 10 years in the opposition group with no overall control. But the lack of discourse around this party in the aftermath of the elections, I think, serves to highlight just how average their performance was. And But they could take solace in the fact that they didn't slip back on their strong showing back in 2017 much. But at the same time... They are slowly drifting into a bit of irrelevance in British politics, really. So what role do you think the Liberal Democrats play now? And do you think they are being replaced as the local protest boat by the Green Party? Potentially, potentially. But like I said, I think you said earlier, is that the, the, Liberal, the Greens are starting from an awfully low base. So in order to become that swell of protest, they had to... We had to see local election growth over numerous election cycles. Mm-hmm. And I only think we've only seen it over the last two or three election cycles for it to really for it to be really the case, really. What role do the Liberal Democrats play now? Now, I think that's a very interesting question because I don't really know since the coalition is they seem to have lost their way a little bit and they haven't quite regained some of the mojo that they had in the pre-coalition years, I would argue. I do note that the St. Albans Council, which they have retook, is the, they hold the Westminster seat of St. Albans. In fact, it was a gain for the Liberal Democrats against the Conservatives mm-hmm. there. And I do note that, you know, in places where tradition the Lib Dems did very well in the past, such as Cornwall and the Southwest, they are very much going backwards. In fact, in the Cornwall Council, County Council election, they lost 11% share of their vote. And they have 13 councillors now compared to 38 previously. So it was an absolutely appalling performance there. But they seem to have counted it by making gains in the southeast area, like Oxfordshire, Cambridgeshire, and, and all. So yes, I think there's hope for the Liberal Democrats there. But like again, they're going to need a lot of hard graft to translate the local support which they can get into a general election and to knock down Yes, I know South Cambridge, as I mentioned earlier, it's only a 2,000 majority, it's relatively simple. But all the Oxfordshire results, you know, the Conservative vote in general election is still very solid in those areas. So they will need a lot of work to reduce that to marginal status and then to gain the seat in the first place. So potentially they could start to pick off a few seats in the southeast eastern region, but it's a very much more slower process as well. I suspect not helped by the fact that if you also put a picture of Ed Davey up, there'll be a lot of blank faces and trying to identify him as leader of the Liberal Democrats as well. Mm-hmm. And do you think the Liberal Democrats will be happy with their performance on Super Thursday? I don't know, because I suppose the Liberal Democrats now have had worse election nights than this under the coalition years. So, you know, and that's still relatively recent in most people's minds. Um, I think they will be happy with some of the results, but I think concerned by the fact that the role in which they play sometimes as the arbiter of disillusioned conservative voters is now being challenged on that front increasingly by the Green Party. And I don't think that they, and they need to formulate a message for that in order to gain a monopoly of the vote, because that's how they can significantly influence, increase their influence in elections to come. 
So mm-hmm. I think they will be okay, happy that they gain seats in some of their target areas, but concerned about the fact that they could have done even better if not for the Green Party. And they need to come up with a message for the Southeast and Eastern disillusioned Remain conservatives that the Liberal Democrats party vote for rather than the Green Party. Mm. And there's another party that needs to do some thinking after Super Thursday, isn't there? Well, the extent of thinking probably has to be a lot more than the Liberal Democrats, isn't it? So let's start with the Labour Party, who had quite an appalling night, you have to say. And I don't think we could, we can't start by talking, not talking about the Hartlepool by-election, which frankly was an absolute disaster for the Labour Party. The Conservatives gained the seat with its candidate, Jill Mortimer, winning 15,520 votes, just more than half of the votes that were cast, against Labour's Dr Paul Williams, who got 8,589, giving the Conservatives a majority of around 6,900 votes. The the big question in this election was what happened to the 10,600 votes that voted Brexit Party in 2019, and it seems Mm -hmm. that it disproportionately went to the Conservatives. But nevertheless, from Labour's point of view, their share of the vote fell to 29% which is an absolutely horrific performance without any doubt. And the swing of 16% from the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, was the biggest swing to the government in a by-election since the end of World War II, which is absolutely astonishing. And like I said, the Labour vote fell by 9%. So in that context, Sam, if you recall, the days, in the days leading up to the by-election, Labour was trying to play down its expectations. And we both had a little chat and we thought there was a chance the Conservatives might gain it. But do you and the Labour Party expect to lose Hartlepool that badly? I mean, the short answer is no. This is only the second government by-election gain since 1982. The last one being when Theresa May's Conservative Party won the Copeland by-election back in 2017. And... I think it came as a surprise just how bad it was, even though it was looking tough to hold on to Hartlepool relative to what happened back in 2019 general election. And I think it, all in all, it was a dreadful night and it was not seen as the result that anyone was really expecting, even though people were thinking the Conservatives would probably just take this. I don't think they really thought it would be by that much. And so therefore, was the Harlepool by-election more of an endorsement of the, gov- of the Conservative government or vote of confidence against Keir Starmer and what, where, where he's bringing the Labour Party? I think it was probably a government endorsement more than anything. I think the pace of the vo- vaccine rollout definitely helped. I think the fact that it was a high-profile upset opportunity for the Labour Party also helped. And I think there's the lingering effect also of of Brexit and the cultural changes that have been going on as well, as we talked about a bit earlier when we talked about the Conservative Party. Um, Because I think with both the candidate, Paul Williams, and Keir Starmer, I think it's very difficult to see this as the candidate being the problem or or or, or the leader of the Labour Party being the problem. Because I think this was very much a national proxy vote on the government. But I think the context of the government having an appalling year in 2020 because it deal with the COVID 
recovery. And one assuming that Keir Starmer will perform better than Jeremy Corbyn ever did, not suddenly go backwards such a big stent, mm-hmm. has, I think, shocked a lot of Labour Party people because their expectations were suddenly set a lot higher than yeah. they actually did. But what I'm hearing, therefore, is that you don't think that uh, another candidate other than the Remain supporting non-Hartlepool living Paul Williams would have done any better in holding Hartlepool, isn't it? No, I don't think a can- another candidate would have done any better. I mean, potentially someone who lives locally might have done a little better because to some people that matters. But in the grand scheme of things, I think this was completely outside of the candidates. And I think, to be honest, on the ballot, it could have just said Labour Party and Conservative Party, and we would have ended up in the same sort of result. And therefore, if you look at the wider council elections, you know, Nottinghamshire, the Conservatives gained it from no overall control. They're getting 60-37 Labour drop date. Derbyshire, the Conservatives gained 8. Labour fell from 24 seats to 14, so they lost 10 seats. Labour lost control of County Durham Council, which you picked as a council to watch. And even more interestingly, Labour leaders on councils in Sheffield, Shropshire, Derbyshire, Oldham, Nottinghamshire, all lost the seats. In fact, in Derbyshire, the council leader held its seat for 25 years and lost his seat. And the deputy leader of the Labour Party also lost his seat in Derbyshire. So it was an appalling night across the northern Red Wall. So therefore, you know, in nearby seats like Hartlepool, like Stockton North, and across the Red Wall in places like Normington, Pontefract, and Castleford, held by Levette Cooper, or even Ed Miliband's seat at Doncaster North, do they have to look over their shoulder? Because they have a quite a sizable particularly in the latter two, Brexit party vote in their constituency. I think a good indication of what is going on in these constituencies will be when the Batley and Spen constituency held its by-election later this year because Tracy Brabin became the mayor of, the inaugural mayor of West Yorkshire. And that is the exact kind of seat that I think Labour will be slightly concerned about. There's different things going on there, of course, as as I'm sure we'll talk about, because Joe Cox's sister, Kim Ledbetter, might be standing as the Labour candidate there, which might help them. But I think this will be a good indication of how widespread this problem is. Indeed. And we'll be covering the Batley and Spen by-election and the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, which will take place in June in podcasts to come. But so therefore, looking across Labour, where was, do you think, which performance was his most disappointing performance? I think County Durham was by far the most disappointing symbolically because County Durham was the first council that the Labour Party took control of way back in 1919. And since 1925, it has been a Labour majority. That is nearly 100 years it's been a Labour majority. So I think losing that majority was a titanic loss and will sting badly because of how important it is to the Labour Party as an institution. But I think in terms of oh, disappointing losses, I think, I think it's difficult to look beyond London as a, difficult, as a disappointing result because I think Sadiq Khan's performance was under what people expected him to do. Sean Bailey's performance was certainly higher than people thought. And on the assembly side, they were hoping to gain the assembly majority and they actually lost they actually lost ground in the London Assembly. So I think that was disappointing, I think. In fact, let's talk briefly about the London mayor, because to me that was 
Labour's most disappointing performance, Sadiq Khan's first preference fell by 4%. And in the second preference, he saw a 1% swing against him, when the narrative for so many weeks had been one of Sadiq Khan doing even better, yeah. and one where traditionally the Conservatives in this kind of urban areas, you know, in a modern Conservative party tend to struggle a lot more. So therefore, what, why did it do so badly in London? Because the ingredients were certainly there for a good Labour performance. You know, young, highly university educated, voted Remain. So what happened in London? London is fast becoming Labour's strongest area in the country. So I think to see Sadiq Khan not get close even to winning on the first ballot was a surprise to many people. And But it is important, I think, to say that Sadiq Khan performed better than Boris Johnson managed to perform on his re-election campaign back in 2012. So it might genuinely be a re-election campaign effect in London. There haven't been enough elections to really uh, assess whether that is happening, but it could be. And I think also Sean Bailey was boosted by having the Conservative Party next to him and in the context of quite a good performance for the Conservative Party, which we've largely accredited to the vaccine rollout, then it becomes less of a surprise. I have to say that if we, we compare against Boris Johnson, but Boris Johnson won his re-election against a background of a Conservative government in Number 10 Downing Street. Something Sadiq Khan doesn't, you know, he can run against the Conservative government against, and yes, he might have done better percentage-wise, but I still think to go backwards from 2016, where there was a Conservative government, and where the trend suggested Labour strengthening demographics was particularly disappointing. Yeah. I remember on the day itself that turnout was particularly low. Did that have an effect for why Sadiq Khan underperformed? Yeah, there was also a very high percentage of rejected ballots in the London mayoral election. 114,000. Yeah. Or 5%, Five. really. So it's an astonishing yeah. number. And, yeah. and that's because of the fact that people, have to, people are used to numbering only one cross, but were told yeah. to mark two crosses in two different rows. So potentially that played a part as well. But and also, I also noted that, you know, Labour is also facing a lot of problems in the fact that the voters that are disillusioned with the Conservatives are not necessarily voting Labour. They're going to the Lib Dems and Greens, like in the local election, rather than to the Labour Party. So do you think that Labour also suffers from a lack of appeal to those voters where they are losing vote, the working class voters to the Conservatives but not necessarily gaining them at an even rate from, from, from the Conservatives in the southern heartlands? And is that, a, is that a problem for messaging or a problem about leadership personalities? I think it's a combination of all those things. I think it's that Labour hasn't quite decided yet what its strategy is going to be because... In my mind, there are several strategies potentially on the table, one of which is going full throttle to try and regain the red wall. Another is trying to make up for that in other areas. Another is going to some of its strongest areas and trying to figure out what's going right. So I think it hasn't quite decided what it wanted to do. In the midst of coronavirus, it's been very difficult to, if they have got a strategy, implement it because going out on the ground has been hard. So I think it's a combination of all those things. And and I think when voters perceive that a party doesn't know what it wants to do, they won't vote for it because voters are quite intelligent that way in that 
if they don't think a party can manage its own internal operations, then it's not really going to be trusted to manage operations of a local area or even the national government. And as we'll talk about in a minute, the reshuffle was evidence of that. Indeed. And, you know, and that's a good point to talk about the reshuffle because it certainly seems Keir Starmer decided the fact that he would take full responsibility for it, decided to that his first way of taking responsibility of it was to sack his deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner from her positions as Labour Party chair and chair of the National Campaign Coordinating Committee. And considering that, you know, just a couple of hours, the, the Labour Party retained the Manchester mayority relatively well, and the fact that the Conservatives lost control of Cambridgeshire County Council, you know, it was rather baffling that those results that he, that she, uh, news of her sacking was leaked and completely changed the narrative. The biggest change from the reshuffle was that Rachel Rees was promoted to become shadow chancellor and Annalise Dodd to becomes, moves to become party chair in charge of policy. Angela Rayner has taken over Rachel Rees' previous jobs. And I note with much amusement that Angela Rayner's full title portfolios, and bear with me on this, Sam, is Shadow First Secretary of State Shadow Minister for the Cabinet Office and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. So quite a mouthful if you want to ever do an introduction for Angela Rayner. Other changes include the fact that Kat Smith and Rosanna Allen Khan's portfolios of mental health and uh, young people and mental health respectively were promoted to cabinet rank. West Streeting and Lucy Power also joined the Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Secretary of State for Child Poverty and Housing respectively. It seems that the main loser was Valerie Vaz, who was sacked as shadow leader of the House of Commons to be replaced by Thabin Dabonair, and Nick Brown was also sacked as chief whip. And it's notable that Nick Brown has served under every Labour leader since Tony Blair. So my first question, Sam, is that do you think Labour's poor performance affected the changes that Keir Starmer decided to make or the timing of this reshuffle? I mean, we've talked, been, we've been talking about a pending Labour reshuffle for quite some time. So I don't think the changes he made were changed by this performance. But I think maybe the timing was because they needed to change the news cycle fast. It's unusual for a party to announce a reshuffle on a weekend. That is not a usual thing to happen. So I think the timing of it was definitely accelerated to just try and move the conversation on. And unfortunately, they didn't necessarily move it on in the most positive way, did they? No, they absolutely did not. And I, and to be honest, it reminded me of Jeremy Corbyn's reshuffle, if you remember, after the 2016 EU referendum, where people were resigning left, right and centre. And then he was trying to put a shadow cabinet together. And the whole process took very long. I remember I was poised to update our Twitter account with that. And it got so late, I had to pass it on to you and just say, update it in the morning. And it went out you have to update it because it was way past my you know what I had to go to sleep by then so it just was just a whole shambolic experience really so you think this reshuffle backfire on Labour's attempt to change his message? I think it maybe did I mean the hope in the Labour Party will be that it this new cycle did not really cut through because people don't pay that close attention to internal party politics and all they will have seen this week really is an intense news cycle where Angela Rayner has got a lot of press. 
And in the end, maybe that will turn out to benefit the Labour Party because seeing someone whose story is as impressive as Angela Rayner in terms of a northern working class woman being able to get to the top of British politics, I think may end up actually benefiting them after all this. But she certainly has to up her performance, though, because I'm not sure whether you saw, Sam, I think it was on Thursday in the urgent question against Penny Morden. Penny Morden, I think for the first time, found a message for the government that was coherent and, you know, was effective put down of Angela Rayner. But let's talk a bit more about Angela Rayner. Do you think she was to blame for Labour's poor performance? You know, if not, why was she removed as Labour Party chair and chair of the National Campaign Coordinating Committee? I don't think Angela Rayner was to blame for Labour's poor performance. I don't really think it's any individual's fault, to be honest. Um, and I don't necessarily think it was a campaign strategy problem either, because I think it was just very difficult in the context of the pandemic to figure out how your campaign was even going to operate at the very basic level, not even what its content was going to be, but how it was going to take place. I think she was removed because I think there's been some conflict between her and Keir Starmer as to what the strategy of the party should be. And I think Keir Starmer was attempting to move her to a very specific portfolio so that her input on the party's operations would not be grand strategy, but would be quite specific policy about a specific area. And in the end, I think she's managed to get both of those things. And, you know, overnight, it was brief as a, you know, kind of a power struggle between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner, which delayed the reshuffle very much. Who emerged victorious from that fight, do you think? I think Angela Rayner emerged victorious because she has become more high profile as a result because of the media round she's had. And she's got a more high profile role, at least a more public facing role within the Labour Party. I think it's very unclear to me and to everyone what actually happened with the Angela Rayner story over the weekend because we're still not clear whether it was supposed to be a leak from the central party, whether she was offered a new job quickly, whether it was always the plan to move her. I, maybe we'll never know that information. But I think certainly she emerged victorious. Indeed. And more widely, though, I want to ask you this question because it's suddenly something that I kept coming back to as I read that list of new Labour shadow cabinet ministers. It seemed to me that the reshuffle was relatively small compared to what was suddenly briefed out. Were you surprised by how small it is? And if not, who do you think should have been promoted, moved, sacked? So I think, yeah, the reshuffle was smaller than I expected because we've talked many times about how we thought maybe Lisa Nandy would be better suited to a domestic-facing portfolio, and that didn't transpire. I was also surprised because a lot of the briefings suggested that some of the former Labour big beasts like Hillary Benn or Yvette Cooper might make a return. Neither of them did. So I was surprised at the limited nature of it. But then I think, did it really warrant a big reshuffle just one year into the operations and in a un un very unusual local election cycle? I'm not sure. But nonetheless, I still struggled to see the logic of... Why would Labour leave one of its best communicators from the North in Lisa Nandy? And we noted on the day itself that in Wigan Council, Labour did not lose a single councillor mm -hmm. on that, which considering the 
you know, the scale of the disaster for labor across the North was particularly impressive, therefore. So do you think it was right that, you know, labor should left one of its best communicators in Disneylandi in foreign affairs, where, frankly, shadowing it in opposition, there isn't much of a way of trying to, it's not really a cleavage issue, isn't it? No, I mean, the I think the last time we talked about this, I talked about how I think that it's quite a handy job for her to be in because you have a very limited scope for what a shadow foreign minister actually does. So therefore it frees her up to be just a general communicator on behalf of the party. But that being said, I think she would be effective at talking about some of the issues that I think Labour needs to deal with if it wants to start performing better, if she was within a very specific domestic portfolio. So I'm sure there is some method to this from the central Labour Party, but I certainly can't understand it right now. And one thing that I also noted, um, if we move on from Lisa Nandy as well, is that the size of the shadow cabinet is frankly enormous. It's 34 members and a 16% of the parliamentary Labour Party. And many of them seem to be shadowing portfolios that do not exist on the government side. Angela Rayner, future of work. Um, you have international development still. You know, housing and local government is shadowed by Robert Jenrich, which is the same minister. Child poverty strategy, West Street, not even, you know, and, and Andy McDonald, employment rights and protections. So there are a lot of secretaries of state in the shadow cabinet who are shadowing portfolios, not on the government side. Why is the overwhelming question I have, Sam? Do you have any reason why this style of strategy is given? Is it just to bring more people well, inside and preventing them from rebelling? To me, I think the answer is quite straightforward as to why. Whether it's the right strategy is a different question entirely, but... The why is that I think the opposition are meant to represent a government in waiting and this is de demonstrating what the priorities would be if Keir Starmer were to become Prime Minister. He would be aiming to set up a department for employment or a department for child poverty or certainly within departments. So I think that's why. I think it's trying to show the priorities of the party and I also think it serves a dual purpose of being able to become the broad church that the Labour Party is because there's more room for people to come in to represent things that their faction of the Labour Party strongly endorses. But as I said, whether this is the right strategy from the public's perspective or even if the public acknowledges that this exists, I'm not even sure. And therefore, Sam, I think it's time to look at not just to consider not just England, but Scotland, Wales and all the elections we've discussed over the last few weeks and do a general overview of looking back what these elections could mean for the national the national parties. And I think we can't really start without the Labour Party, really. What lesson would it learn most from these local election results? I think that what we saw in places like Greater Manchester, where Andy Burnham increased his already very impressive majority, is that they had an optimistic and clear message which people get on board with 
And it's not just about signaling or being demonstrative to areas that you want to win support of, but it's coming up with just a wider vision for government. And I think that's something that they need to focus on getting. And it's something Andy Burnham has effectively done in Greater Manchester. And I think it's something that the National Party can pay closer attention to. Indeed. I think for me, if I was Labour's point of view, I would take away from the fact that these elections show that the the extent of the rebuilding is very much bigger and very much more widespread than they potentially have. It's not just Brexit that was causing the problems in it, because if it's just Brexit, we would have seen a more reversion to the political norms. And what we clearly have seen in this election is an acceleration of many of the trends that took place in the last election. And I think Labour has to do a lot of thinking beyond that. And not only that, it's the balance of the fact that its messaging it needs in the red wall is certainly very different from that in its target seats in the South, or in London for that matter, isn't it, Sam? It is, and I think that's the complex balance that people are going to have to figure out within the Labour Party. And finally, for the Conservatives' point of view, how would they look at these elections? They must be pretty pleased, isn't it? Because I frankly think that if these elections were repeated nationally, they were probably looking at another majority government for the Conservatives, isn't it? We are. Now, they're going to be happy because they would probably win a general election very comfortably on the basis of these results. But things are going to get more difficult very quickly. And so the Conservative Party need to be on their toes as the economic recovery becomes the centrepiece of their programme for government. But it's suddenly enjoying a slight honeymoon period. I know, did you see the latest YouGov poll, yes. which put the Tories on? Yes, 18% ahead. 18% ahead. And, and, you know, if you ever need, if Labour ever needs a message of the mountain it needs to climb, you know, that is showing you the extent that 11-year-old Conservative government has still managed to have such a substantial lead. One final question I have, Sam, is that for a lot of people, the current Conservative government didn't begin in May 2010. It began in December 2019. How on mm-hmm. earth did, he, did they manage to reinvent themselves as a new government as of only December 2019? Because I think if you think, if you, if you set your expectation, this government only been in power since December 2019, or when Boris Johnson took over earlier in the year, it could explain the result. But how have the Conservatives managed to unwind the clock on those nine years? I think they were benefited by the political climate they came into because Brexit completely threw up in the air everything we know about British politics and it landed back down and then emerged with a Boris Johnson-led Conservative government because, as we talked about last week, the even five years ago when these elections last took place was a completely different universe. Um, and I think they, they were benefited a lot by that because... Even even us two who follow politics very closely would agree that the Conservative Party that went into a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats in 2010 is a completely different Conservative Party to the one that is governing a majority now. Indeed. And I, I don't really remember the word austerity being really talked about no. at all, really. But the conversations for the Labour Party will continue because, let's be honest, there's going to be a long road ahead and further tests will be coming out in the Chesham Emerson by-election in June and badly in spend. And I'm sure, Sam, now that we're back in full by-election season, it's like, you know, the world is becoming more normal again, isn't it? It is, yes. But for now, that is the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. 
Join us again next week when we'll be looking this time at the results of the Indian state elections from earlier in this month. And as always, we'll be bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe beyond that. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.